0: Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we'll start reading at verse 1. Luke 18. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray, and not to faint. Saying, there was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary." And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith." And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Amen. We know the Lord Himself will add His blessing onto the reading of His Word tonight. We'll bow together in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee that as we approach Thy throne, there's a very obvious launching pad for prayer in the passage that we have read. There are pointers, indicators, little bits of inspiration, words of instruction as to how we ought to pray, as to what value we should be setting on prayer, as to the level of expectancy regarding God answering prayer. And we pray, see, that all of that and much more is written here. These things we know are written for our learning. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so we bring ourselves to Thy throne tonight. We pray that Thou wilt open the book to our knowledge, to our instruction that Thy Lord will speak powerfully onto our hearts, speak reassuringly, and may we see tremendous answers to prayer. Help us not to constrict the space in terms of the container for blessing that we bring with us, Lord, we pray that as Jabez did, we pray that double would enlarge our coast, that it make the container so much bigger than we could ever anticipate. Answer prayer, pour out thy Spirit, lift up thy Son, exalt the One who shed His blood For us, and who appeals to us, ask and seek and knock, knowing that we will be heard, that we will find, we will receive, the door will be opened. Thou said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, Unto your children, how much more then will God, our Father, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? We pray for those at no bereavement at this time, and we ask that I will give grace and help in the funeral service in Liverpool on Friday. We pray again as the service is conducted for our sister Isabel Hayes on Monday, that thy touch will be evident and great grace will be abounding. We pray for Michelle down the road in Ballinafoy on the sudden passing of her father, that I would speak particularly and powerfully there, And may the Holy Spirit of grace and supplications be evident right there. Come and answer prayer. Speak on to our hearts now, we pray, in Jesus' name, and for God's eternal glory. Amen. From the very beginning of time, we know that men and women have prayed. In fact, we come across the very first reference to prayer in the Bible, back in Genesis 4, and the verse 26. And to Seth, we read there, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And from that point in time, in all kinds of places, at all times, in every conceivable situation, men and women have prayed. And in fact, it's not exaggerating the point to say that those who follow Christ, and the heathen as well, and the followers of false religion, they have been praying spending huge amounts of time in the pursuit of what they call prayer all over this globe. But very few people have made prayer their supreme priority in life. And those who do, they always stand out as bright lights in this world. We tend to know their name, and books are written about them, and a lot of material fills the biographies about these particular people, those who, well, like praying Hyde, David Brainerd, Edward Pison, praying Pison as well, these men stood out and of course, woman too, as prayer warriors, those that taught the rest all around them the value of prayer. And in Luke 18, the verse 1 tonight, we have our Savior underlining the point that prayer ought to have that preeminent place in our lives. And he spake a parable unto them to this end. Here's his point that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So right at the beginning, before the parable is taught, we are told what is going to be the main lesson in the parable here. That's our advantage. Those that heard the parable did not know until it ended, or until it was being carried through, what the main lesson was. But we have this preface to this parable, and we're told what it's all about. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. So, tonight, we're going to look at this, and we're going to examine the point that God is telling us, I want you to be in constant contact and communion with me. First thing we're looking at in the and tonight is the nature of prayer. What is prayer? In other words, the nature of prayer. Back to basics here. Prayer is an invitation to God. It's not coercion. It doesn't operate on the basis of being coaxing us. It's simply we're inviting, as we've received an invitation from God, we're inviting God to take over a situation or our whole lives, indeed. And as we pray, it's an invitation, God, come and help us. We are admitting our weakness. We are laying out our need. We are saying we don't have the Power. We need God to take over and intervene in our circumstances. Jairus, a very good illustration of that, in Mark five, the verse twenty-two and the verse twenty-three. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, binding And when he saw him. He fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. Here's the need. It's acute, Lord, and I can't do anything about it. I pray thee... Come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And there are so many lessons coming cascading out of those few words in Mark 5, and 23. But it's underlining the point here that prayer by its nature is an invitation to God. Lord, I am in need, and no one else can meet my need but Thee. Prayer is also work. True praying is not a job for the lazy. It might require us to get up early. It may require us to stay up late. Prayer is never finished until it has sprouted feet and goes to work. We have an illustration. In the cities of refuge, you'll know there were six of them dotted throughout the land of Israel in Old Testament times. And in Deuteronomy 4, 41, 42, we have a reference to these. Then Moses severed three cities. On this side, Jordan, there were three on the other side, toward the sun rising, that the slayer may flee thither. And the picture was, if you accidentally killed another person, And if you got into, through the gateway, into one of these six designated cities of refuge, you would be safe. And the manslaughter would not be charged to your account. In other words, you would not have a life for a life at that point. Get inside the city. You cannot be touched by the one who would be the avenger of blood. But the city wasn't coming Brick by brick, stone by stone, looking for you, rolling down some kind of a hill to find where you were. The obligation was on you. get up there, use the energy you have, use it as quickly as you possibly can, put it into action. You need to flee to the city of refuge. And when we pray, prayer is work are not really finished until we have got our legs into motion and are answering our own prayers in many ways as well. It's an invitation to God. It is work. Prayer is also a battle. The devil doesn't care one jot about us. If he looks down and he sees that we are prayerless, that we're not constant or regular communers with God, Doesn't care. We are no danger to him. We don't represent any threat. He'll not fear our prayerlessness. But if we are engaged in prayerful intercession before God, he will bitterly oppose all of our efforts in prayer. Zechariah 3 Joshua appearing in the presence of God and the devil standing at his right hand to resist him. But of course, He does it because he knows something. And he's a better knowledge oftentimes than we do. Because he knows if that soul gets through, prayer is the greatest weapon in the battle between good and evil. William Cooper wrote, Restraining Prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armour bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. The next point ties into the former one. It's a battle, but prayer is power. Do we need to labor that point? It's the greatest power on earth. So well documented, so highly testified to. There can't be any controversy on that particular point or issue. Power is at its peak when God's people are praying. What about Moses? What about Daniel? What about the three Hebrew children? What about Elijah? What about Paul and Silas in prison? What about Jonathan Edwards in history and John Livingstone up in Scotland who prayed one night? And the next day was the best day. In fact, the absolute highlight of his ministry, Thousands of souls at the Kirk of Shots pressed into the kingdom. He never knew another time like it. But every preacher would love just one of those. You'd love more, but if you had one, what a breakthrough that would be of God's power. Again, nature of prayer being powerful. George Mueller, you see, without question, As one person quoted, prayer can obtain everything, can open the windows of heaven and shut the gates of hell, can put a holy constraint upon God and detain an angel till he leaves a blessing, can open the treasures of rain, and soften the iron ribs of rocks till they melt into a flowing river, can arrest the sun in his course, as it did in Joshua's day, and send the winds upon our errands. Prayer is power. And not only that, it's a developer. Prayer is that essential ingredient in tandem with the Word of God that completes the Christian character. We're told to grow in grace, but we can't grow in grace without reliance upon prayer. A developer. Not only that, it's the Christian's wardrobe. While dwelling in this cold, old world, And we've got a fairly low temperature out there tonight, and no doubt it will become lower again, and we'll feel it. We'll be glad when we get out there of the clothing that we've on, and maybe hope we had another layer as well, in addition to those that we do have, the praying church. It will never become a museum for frozen saints. But that's our challenge. May we never become that museum. Four frozen saints. You'll remember how Spurgeon. Visitors came along to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Elephant and Castle in London, and he said to them, Do you want to see the heating apparatus? And they thought, Well, that's a a strange thing. We've come here to hear the preaching. We we know that you're a man of renown and you're famous spread abroad, and we want to hear one of the best sermons we've ever heard in our lives. That's why we've come to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he took them underground, down into the basement of the church, opened the door, hundreds of people interceding, praying before God. And he said, that's our heating system. And in Revelation 3 and verse 17, of course, we have that criticism of the church in Laodicea that felt it had arrived. It did everything. We have need of nothing. That was their cry, their mantra. And the Lord said, but... You're blind and you're poor and you're naked and your needs are multitudinous. You just don't see it. It's our wardrobe, this prayer. Not only that, it is the fragrance in the Christian activity. It's the fragrance in the Christian activity. Now, it's really easy to go about in the work of God and to be smelling like artificial flowers in our service for Jesus Christ. No sweet scent at all. Just bland. We do our duty. And there's very little evidence that it's coming out of a bursting, enthusiastic, zealous heart. We can't say, as we thought of Christ on Sunday morning past, saying, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. No, we're just coming. We're taking a box. We're doing it according to fashion. We're doing it the way we know that we should do it. Yes, we have put effort into it, but really, we've lost our fire for Christ. The temperature in our heart is not high. We're like those artificial flowers. Outwardly, they look fine. They look like the real thing. It's only when you come close, and you go in close for a sniff, and you find there's nothing to smell. No spiritual fragrance about the life. True prayer pulls out the fragrance. It means that everything we do, we will do in the breath of heaven. And that is what you and I undoubtedly need. Prayer is communication with heaven. Still thinking of the nature of prayer. Final point we'll make about this nature of prayer. It's that unbroken line between earth and heaven. Jacob's ladder, that concept prayers ascending, answers descending. When we pray, enter into thy closet. We were thinking about that not so long ago in Matthew 6, and close the door. We are brought into His presence. We are in touch with God. The nature of prayer. But then moving on from the nature of prayer, because you'll see here in Luke 18 and verse 1, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray. That's the thing that is emphasized. That's the key verb here, pray, the nature of prayer. But then you'll see also the necessity of prayer. Men ought, ought always to pray, the necessity of prayer. I find wherever I read in the Bible, a prayer is always brought in the form of a priority. That theme is repeated again and again throughout Scripture, and we have it here. Our Lord is marshalling the arguments, puts them into a parable, a story that we can relate to, to show how vital, how much of a priority... Prayer ought to be in our lives. And so he says, Man ought always to pray and not to faint. But then in Romans twelve and verse twelve, we have a similar thought, the words continuing, instant in prayer. Then in First Thessalonians five and seventeen, just three short words in our English translation: pray without ceasing. Doesn't mean that we ought to be simply, every second of every minute of every hour of every day, engaged in prayer. Praying, 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 praying. Otherwise, nobody would be in employment if they were a Christian. We'd all be in the closet 24 hours a day. Very impractical, that is. That's not what, we, what is being taught here. But rather, that we should remain in the spirit of prayer. That little chorus might be full of deep theology, but he is only a prayer away. That's how our lives should be lived. That we are in touch with God. That we're living with God as though he were at our elbow. Right there. Praying in an instant. Ensure that fellowship with him is not broken. Ruptured. Screamed pray without ceasing. Men ought always to pray, a priority. And you'll know all the illustrations in Scripture as well as I know them. We have Job. In Job 1 and 5, revealed to be a man of prayer, we have Abraham back in Genesis 12 and verse 7 to 8, and Genesis 13, verse 4 and 18, Genesis 22 and the verse 9, just some instances where Abraham's prayer life is emphasized over in Romans 4 as well. Then we have Moses, Exodus thirty-three eleven, Exodus 17, the verse 11, holding up the arms of God's servant Moses as he pleads when Amalek, the old enemy, attacked. Then we have David right through the Psalms. How many references do we not have in the whole book of the Psalms that bring us to the fact this man had a vibrant prayer life? He was praying and praying and praying. Men ought always to pray. David is a supreme example of that. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 22 and 23, also show us that's the secret of his fearlessness. Then we have Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 1. We have him again in 18 verse 36 through 38. We have him sending a servant up the mountain, and he tells him, go again seven times. I'll keep pleading and interceding and praying for this old nation in the middle of its drought, and God, he will answer prayer, and he did another illustration, and one of the most popular, I guess, in Scripture is Daniel. Daniel 6 and verse 10. Daniel's prayer, Daniel 9, Daniel chapter 10. As well, you can see how powerfully and insightfully he prayed, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate example. Matthew 14, 23, Matthew 26, 36 to 39, Mark 1, the verse 35, Luke 6 and 12, Luke 9, the verse 18, Luke 9 and the verse 29, and many other portions in Scripture underline the point. Our Lord Jesus was a supreme advocate of the vitality of prayer. In His earthly ministry, He relied on prayer, and He didn't do it accidentally. He did it purposefully, Now, let's see this very straight. If the Son of God had to pray, how much more should I pray? Must I pray? And my Lord takes it for granted that that's what I'm going to do. Because in Matthew 6 and 5, and again, we weren't far back in history, when we were in the passage there, he takes it for granted. We are going to follow his example in prayer. And so, he said, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be, but thou shalt do this. So, is prayer a priority in our life? It ought to be, because it's our lifeline to the Father. Not only the priority, but prayer should be a prerequisite. Men ought to always pray. It should be a prerequisite. What I'm saying is this, before we attempt anything, we should be praying. I can't do anything in any area of my life without first taking the time to saturate the situation in prayer. It's like, and if some of you aren't uh, big fans of the Indian restaurant. Let me recommend that you go along and you ask for a dish called chicken shishlik. where the chicken is marinated for 48 hours or so in yogurt and is the softest chicken you will eat in your life, guaranteed. You will love it. Things that happen in life hard situations, difficult circumstances, how are they ever going to be softened by the mariner of prayer? That's what happens. Do we need to remind ourselves of the most famous hymn from the pen of Joseph Scriven, Bambridge Man, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It's a prerequisite. John Bunyan put it very well when he said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And then he encourages, pray often. For prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. But he encapsulates the thought here. You can do more than pray only after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. It's the pre requisite. Did you notice how our Lord preceded his activity with prayer? You'll find that before he fed the 5,000, he prayed. John 6, verse 11, before he raised Lazarus out of the grave and commanded, come forth, he prayed. John eleven forty one. 41, before his trial, so unjust though it was. And that terrible crucifixion, He prayed. Luke 22, should be the reference there, 41 to 45. Luke 23 into verse 34, because on that cross, He is pleading. He is praying. So, in the realm especially of spiritual activity, prayer is vital. And if I go out trying to perform the deed in the power of the flesh, I will be doomed to failure, or self-glorification, which really is failure in another dress. Because if I go out and somehow it winds up that my name is up in lights, he did this, that's actually failure of the worst sort, because I am robbing God of his glory right there. And His glory, I ought to remember, He will not give to another. And if we carry out God's work in the power of our own selves, we're going to be doomed to failure. But if we do it based on the platform of prayer, we will succeed and He will get all the glory. And that is the way it should be. The necessity of prayer. Think of its practice here. It's not enough to know neat prayer formulae, rules, promises, valuable though all of these are. To make prayer really effective, we must practice prayer. You know, your child starts to ride a bicycle, greasy knees, sore hands, plenty of tears… And there's you looming over them, big figure, saying, practice makes perfect. Or they start playing some musical instrument, and initially, it doesn't sound anything like the tune they're telling you they're playing. Makes you want to get out of the house. But you still tell them, practice makes perfect. To make prayer truly effective we must practice prayer. We must become busy, immersed in the business of prayer. Now, I know that I'm speaking to busy people, and we have too many needs, and we have too little time to fit those needs into. I know that. We all feel like that, but that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. Stonewall Jackson E.M. Bounds, big writer on the subject of prayer, tells us in his Purpose in Prayer. E.M. Bounds tells us Stonewall Jackson was a man of prayer. He said, I have so fixed the habit of prayer in my mind that I never raise a glass of water to my lips without asking God's blessing. Never seal a letter without putting a word of prayer under the seal. Never take a letter from the post without a brief sending of my thoughts heavenward. Never change my classes in the lecture room without a minute's petition for the cadets who go out and for those who come in. When we are cultivating the custom of praying, we'll be like this guy, Stonewall Jackson. We'll be praying about everything. And it'll not feel foolish. And it'll not feel redundant. Maybe we have a pressing need sometimes, and we pray, but see very little result. Might be looking for a new job. Might be asking for a cure for some debilitating illness. Might be asking for a burden, a heavy burden, to be lifted. And we wonder, is God on holiday? Why isn't He answering my prayer? Do you ever wonder if God's hearing at all? Well, He is. doesn't take holidays. Is always available. It's a promise He's given to us, and He's never going to break it. Psalm 34, the verse 15 tells us, "'The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry.'" Now, we've got to be honest. I'm sure you, like me, I have experienced many occasions where I felt as if God was not listening— and yet, when I look back on those moments, I realize he was listening, and he did certainly answer. Maybe not in the way that I wanted him to, but he answered. Don't stop crying to the Lord. He is listening. He is acting in your behalf. He is pulling all no threads in that are really tangled as we look at them, but he's pulling them all in, into their proper place. Rest in His promise, trust in His goodness, for He's good all the time, and keep petitioning His throne of grace, because weak praying produces weak practice. If we are to be effective for the Lord, we must be diligent in our praying. Final point, and we'll be brief on it, but we've looked at the nature of prayer, what it really is to pray. Men ought always to pray. The necessity, men ought to pray. But there's a negative about prayer here. In Luke 18, in verse 1, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not, not to faint. Not to faint. You can interpret that as not lose heart. It's a fairly deep word, and it goes right, right down. It means to be utterly spiritless, to be wearied out, to be exhausted. May not always to pray, and not to faint. The same word appears in Galatians 6 and 9. It appears six times in the New Testament. Galatians 6 and 9, where we're not to be weary in well-doing. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, same thought exactly. Not to be weary. Do not lose heart. Think of the woman of Canaan. And we close with three quick examples here. The woman of Canaan, And she comes, and her daughter needed healing. And Jesus pushed her back. I'm not really called to help you. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you're a Canaanite. And eventually she says, "But even the dogs eat of the crumbs. From the master's table. just give me a crumb." She kept praying. Man ought always to pray, and not to faint. And she did not faint. Jacob, though physically, he's feeding and he's now got a limp in the middle of the wrestling, I will not let thee go. Except, thou bless me, he did not faint. And not only that, but Rachel, who got in on the same attitude and showed the same aspect, she says to her husband Jacob, give me children or else I die. Is that not an echo of John Knox's prayer for Scotland? Give me Scotland, or I die. Can we not pray, give me Belfast, or I die? Men ought always to pray, and not to faint. May we not faint. May we keep praying. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer tonight.